Hallelujah. God builds his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's when we start to try to build the church that the gates of hell prevail against us. You know? So anyway, there's my preach. We're done. Great. If you've been coming to Up Rock Church for a while or a few weeks at that, you will know that we as a church this year are focusing in on and spending the majority of our time in the book of Revelation. Uh, however, every now and then we get to the end of a section and we take a break from Revelation because I can see people are starting to go a little bit crazy at times. Their hair's wild when they come to church. They're just like, man, what's going on in this book? And so we always just give you a little bit of a break just to re- regather yourself again. And we're in one of those breaks now. We're looking at some of our kingdom values. But the good news is next week we're back in Revelation. So just get ready to get wild here again. It's going to be crazy. Last week, Sunday, JJ was here with us, a good friend of ours, somebody who God sent to us, literally. I mean, he just appeared one day out of nowhere and built a friendship with him, an amazingly talented and gifted worship leader in his own right, an amazing teacher. And he spoke to us about the value of worship. More importantly, what is worship? He asked the question, what is it? You know, there's a reality to all of our lives that all of us are worshipers, whether we believe it or not, whether we want to believe it or not. We're all worshiping something. The question is, what is that thing that is taking the most real estate of our lives? Is it God or is it something else? I'm not here to condemn anyone. There are times in my life where I'm often uh, consumed by other things more than God. And yes, I'm, I'm up here and I'm saying that. I mean, surprise, I'm also human. But we have to keep bringing our attention back to God. That's what worship is. And it's not something we do on a Sunday morning when there's somebody playing a guitar or playing the drums. It's something we do 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of the year. And so worship was an amazing value, and he did a great job of it. This morning, we're going to continue, and we're going to look at this idea of an advancing church. And you're probably thinking, well, why do we have to hear about the church? Surely we're at church. Isn't that enough? Here we are. No, it's not enough, just in case you're wondering. The reason why we have to consistently remind ourselves what the church is, is because if we're honest with ourselves, we've forgotten many of the times what the church should be and what it's been designed by God to be. And if the church is the instrument and the vehicle that God is going to use to bring a message of hope to a lost and dying world, then we better understand what God's pattern is and how we get behind what he's doing as opposed to build our own kingdoms. We're very good at that and we're very industrious people. We are very good at creating things. And the danger with that is that we can become so good at creating things that we forget the creator who created all things and we, be, we make things about us. I want to tell you a little bit before we even get into the text, something about what the church isn't. You see, the church is not an organization. The church is organic, but it's not an organization. The church is not a social club. Yes, we might get you on a Sunday and I know we want to have coffee with you and we will socialize in the life of the church, which is an amazing thing. I'm not saying be mean to everyone now and don't talk to them. What I am saying though is we don't gather here to socialize, although that's a great benefit. It's not a building. These walls, as beautiful as they may be, and these signs and these lights, I've said this before, are meaningless unless Jesus is the head of this church. This just becomes a storeroom, another warehouse, another place where people can just come and hang out. But it only makes sense if Jesus is on the throne that this would be a church. It's not a public speaking venue. It's not a place we go to watch music concerts, although they might happen in them, but that's not the church either. The church is certainly not a gifted preacher or a talented worship leader or a talented gift that everyone flocks around to go and see. That is not the church either. It may be a component of the church, and I'm sorry you haven't been blessed with that here, but it's not the thing. And so let me tell you what the church is. The church is God's people. 
The totality of us as believers together are the church. With Christ Jesus being the head of the church. The one who builds the church. The church is a relational, organic body of people living in and out of love. Centered around who? Jesus. Not a person, not a personality, not a gift. We center ourselves around Jesus. When we come here on a Sunday morning together, we come here together around Jesus. And please let me say this to you. If you do not encounter Christ in this service or in this meeting or in this church, please stop coming to this church. You're wasting your time. We do have great coffee, but apart from that, nothing else is going to happen. It's a people of God declaring and living out the message of the gospel. Living it out. Not just understanding it and accepting it and say, wow, that's cool, Lord. I'm saved. Hallelujah. No, we live out the message of the gospel, which means we take the message in us. We take it out to the world and we cause the enemy's kingdom to retreat as we advance. Why? Because Jesus asked us to do that. And so we do that with great joy and great power. And so now that you know what it isn't and what it is, we could really be done. However, I do want to ask a question. Because while we might all agree that that is what the church should be and is, I want to ask us if that is the church that we have come to know. And I ask that question because there is no denying it. The enemy right now in this world is attacking churches like never before. He's attacking people within churches like never before. He's bringing in divisions, all of these crazy things that he wants to divide the body. He wants us to be running around looking after shiny things as opposed to looking at Jesus Christ. And so the church of today, if we're brutally honest, and this is not just our generation, it's happened throughout the years, is being attacked and is, according to me at least, in a little bit of trouble. And I say that because when the church loses its way, it's lost its Lord. That's why. We need to make Jesus the Lord of the church again. We need to make Jesus the center of what we do. If he is the one that's leading the charge, if he is the one that's sending this gospel message out, how can we do it without him? And there's something interesting that you find in the Old Testament. There's some prophecies as it relates to what is going to happen to the church in the last days. Let me read some of them to you. Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 30. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. Just listen to that. The prophets who have got the word of God don't speak the word of God. Instead, they tell lies. And then what's worse is the priests, the shepherds, the people who are in charge of the flock of God decide to lead according to their own unctions. What suits me? What's going to benefit me? That's how I'm going to lead my people. But here's the clincher of all clinchers. My people love to have it so. You see, we can so quickly jump on the bandwagon and say, oh, we've got to be careful of false teachers. We've got to be careful of false preachers. We've got to be careful of false prophets because they're bad people. But here's the reality. Why do you think we see people fall from grace all the time in the most horrendous ways, whether that's through relationships, unhealthy relationships, whether that's through addictions and diseases, whether that's through burnout or pastors even killing themselves? Why do you think we see that? Because we, the collective as God's people, have raised them up to such a high standard We want them to tell us these sweet things. We want them to tell us soothing words because we become tired of hearing the word of the Lord. Isaiah says something even more crazy. Two and a half million years ago, before we are living today, Isaiah had this to say about the future church. It's a prophecy and it's relevant to us now as much as it was relevant to the early church then. It says, and now go write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. 
This word is a witness to the church forever. We can't just park it and say, well, that was for the nation of Israel. No, no, this is for us. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions. Leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. The nation of Israel at that moment in time had got so fed up with hearing from the prophets. Why? Because the prophets kept telling them they were living in sin. Jeremiah got killed. He was just, I mean, that guy had a tough job. Let me tell you, I, I praise the Lord, I'm not Jeremiah. But man, God gave him a commission to say, repent, people, come back to the Lord. And eventually the nation gets so fed up and says, we want none of this anymore. Please don't teach us about Jesus anymore. Please don't teach us about the God of the Bible. In fact, just tell us stories. We like that. We've turned church, friends, into an illusion, a parlor trick, an experience. That's what we come for. Sunday after Sunday, week after week. We come for the experience. We come for our shot of espresso called God that we can leave and feel empowered, often leaving behind everything else that we've ever heard. Please don't think I'm preaching at you. The first person that this word had to impact was me. I'm preaching to myself. I'm as, I'm as susceptible to this as anybody else in this room. I want to give you some interesting stats, stats that really break my heart. Just to show you that I believe we are living in Isaiah's, in Isaiah's day. I say Isaiah, Isaiah, what do you say? I mean, it's Isaiah, that's the name. But because you call it Isaiah, I'm going to say Isaiah for today. But I'm not going to say Omega, it's Omega, Mark. Okay, finished. <laughs> Listen to this crazy story. 37% of pastors, this is according to the Arizona Christian University's American Worldview study from this year done by George Barner himself. According to 37% of all pastors in the USA, I mean, sorry, only 37% of pastors in the USA hold a biblical worldview. Maybe let's read that the other way around. 63% of pastors leading churches, serving in churches, depositing into the body of Christ, actually have no biblical worldview. They don't even regard the God of the Bible to be true anymore. Now, I don't know if that's, does that scare you? It scares me. In fact, the report found that a large percentage of these pastors, regardless of their title, position, or denominational affiliation, reject biblical teaching on multiple matters. Gets worse. 39% of evangelical pastors contend that there is no absolute moral truth. So 39% of pastors don't believe that this is absolutely true anymore. Only 38% of these pastors believe that human life is sacred. Which means 62% of pastors don't believe in the miracle of conception. That human life should be protected from the moment it's conceived. That there is a life in that body. And they support the slaughtering of millions and millions of children across the world. Friends, the church is in trouble. This is not the church that Jesus came to lead. It is the church that the world has influenced. 30% of pastors don't even believe that Jesus has a part to play in salvation. That just like blows my mind. You see, the rejection of biblical truth is all around us. Isaiah warned us and it's here. And you know what? It's okay if we expect this to happen in the world. The world is against God. We understand that. The world is at enmity with God. And so it should reject it. We should take this stuff and say, man, that's not surprising. 
But when we start to hear that more people outside in the world actually believe more about biblical truth than people in the church, there's something wrong with the church, friends, and we've got to do our best to come back to what matters most. When we look around us, what we see is a church that's more interested in crowds than souls. A church that's more interested in pleasing people than it is in pleasing its king. A church that's more interested in preaching a truth that culture demands rather than the truth that the Lord, the King of Kings, the, the, the Alpha and the Omega has declared in his word. It's a church filled with illusions, politics, clever mechanisms that captivate desperate and spiritually poor people. That's the church that we often see around us. Now before you think I'm judging other churches, I'm not. This message is for us. I say that because just as I'm susceptible, susceptible, did you get that? Just as I'm susceptible to becoming hardened in my heart and to run after these things because they are appealing and attractive, we as a church can make the exact same mistakes. There's no worse church out there. I'm not calling anyone out. I'm saying we need to make sure that our hearts are right. And it's with that in mind that I want to remind us some things about the church that Jesus Christ is the head of. I want to remind us about some founding principles, principles that I believe are going to guard us in the season that we're in. If we believe these things, I think we will be kept relatively safe. We will be attacked, but we will stand firm. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. It's it's interesting. This morning at our prayer meeting, Tim basically prayed through Ephesians chapter 4. I think he steals my notes on a Friday. No, I'm just kidding. But it is confirmation that God has something to say from this text for all of us. Let me tell you a little bit about Ephesians. Ephesians was written by Paul. He's writing it from jail. He writes four books from jail. Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians. And he's in jail because the religious leaders of Jerusalem wanted to kill him. Often behind the deceptive or the false or the inauthentic church is a religious spirit, just so you know that. Often what drives a a counterfeit church is self-righteous spirits and religious spirits, just so we're aware of it. It's not Satanists. Satanists don't come in and mess us all up. It's often religion, pride, and things like that that drive us to this. In Ephesians 4 verse 1, Paul is speaking. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, and he's speaking to the church. This book is for the church, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now there's something about that word calling and called. He's not speaking about your individual call. He's not saying that you might be called to look after children or called to go be a missionary in India. That's not the calling he's speaking about. He's speaking about the first calling that all of us receive as we become children of God. And that is to become a body, to become part of the body of Christ. Every one of us are called to be a part of his body. And that brings us to our first point, or at least our first reminder. And that is this, being a part of God's church is not something we can opt out of. It's not something we can say, no, I don't really feel like doing that today. And I'm speaking both about the global and local church. God's plan is through local churches. Yes, we form a global church, but we can't just say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm part of the church. No, you have to be part of a local church before you can be a part of the kingdom of God. That's the way God set up. Don't fight me. Go read Acts chapter 17. You'll read it there. But I do want to say this, and I've mentioned this before. For many years in my life, I used to go to the Lord and say to him, you know, Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful for what you've done for me. I'm grateful, Lord, that you set me free from addiction. I'm grateful that you saved me. I know I'm saved. But you know, Lord, I want to tell you one thing. I love you, Jesus, but I hate the church. I don't know if anyone else has ever felt like that in this room. I love you, Jesus, but I hate the church. And it took a moment, an experience in my life, because obviously the only critical person in that was me, right? 
Because I used to not want to go to church because I said, everybody's critical and judgmental. Here I am saying, Lord, the church is critical and judgmental. Often the loudest critical people will be the most critical people themselves, right? I was that guy. And I took an experience in 2013 when I was walking across the desert. Yes, desert experiences are real, bro. Let me tell you. You can go, you want to experience God, go walk across the desert. That's where Moses went for 40 years of his life. That's where Jesus went for 40 days. I'm not Moses or Jesus, just to be clear. But I did encounter God. And he asked me an interesting question. I felt and I believed. It wasn't an audible voice, but I really felt like I heard from God. And he said to me this. You keep telling me you love me, but you hate the church. How can you love me and hate the church that I died for? And I, you know when somebody asks you a really good question? And you're like, hmm. I'm going to come back to you, Lord, in that one. <laughs> but it was in that moment that I realized that my entire Christian life up to that point, I had been trying to fashion a church after my own likeness. I'd been looking for a church that catered to all my specific needs. I had a very deep list of needs, and there was just no church that ever met my standards. I wanted churches to do things for me that really they would never be able to do anyway, but I had this perspective in my mind that somehow I was entitled to this, and this is what the church should look like. And I forgot that I wasn't the center of the church, but that Jesus was, and in fact, he still is. And it was in that moment that everything changed for me. Now, I do want to say this. I get it that the church can look unappealing at times. I get it. Believe me, we've been leading this church for three years. I know what that means. We've been part of churches for many years. I know what that means. I know sometimes we look at churches, we're like, woo, I don't want to go to that place. I also get that the church is never going to be perfect. Why? Because it's filled with imperfect people. Do you know that you're imperfect? Does everyone here know that they're imperfect? Is it just me? And so we expect the church to be perfect, but we're filled with imperfect people. Hurt people hurt people. We do it all the time. And so I had to learn that I have to have grace for churches too. Because you know what Jesus promises us? He says, if you can just do one thing, if you can keep your eyes on me as a church, make me the center of everything. One day when I come back, you will be the perfectly spotless bride that I'm coming back for. But if you don't keep your eyes on me and you keep looking at each other and you keep fighting with each other and you keep doing this and you're doing that, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be a child when I comes back, come back. And I'm not coming back for a child, I'm coming back for a bride. This whole passage, as you'll see, is about maturing in Christ. We are all maturing, friends, and so have grace for one another. And so just because we might not like the church or things that have happened to us in the church, maybe we've been hurt in the church, maybe somebody's neglected us in the church, maybe somebody's overlooked us in the church. Believe me, it happens all the time. We're all people. We cannot opt out of it because we've been called to be a part of it, both at the global, but first at the local level. And it might not be Hope Rock Church. That's fine. Honestly, I'm not here trying to get you guys to come join Hope Rock Church. What I'm saying is if it's not here, find the church that God wants you connected to. But ask Him. Lord, where do you want me in the season that I'm going in? Don't go look for all the churches that are going to meet all your criteria. Because let me tell you, you will never find a church that's going to meet all your criteria. And then when you do find one that you think does, they're going to disappoint you and you're going to leave. Hmm. Sorry. Reminder number two. Being a part of the church means we will always contend for unity. Now, I do want to just support that statement. Sometimes we don't leave church because we hurt. Sometimes we leave church because God's moved us on, and that's good. When we welcome people into our DNA classes, we say one thing to them. God has seasons for all of our lives. He plants us in a specific time and in a specific place for a season. So we don't have any expectations that people stay somewhere forever. Some people do, but that's what God wants for them. 
But God moves us as he wills. And so we celebrate it when God moves people out. That's why we celebrate it here today. It's not a bad thing. The church must stop trying to hold on to people. We need to start being open-handed and saying, Lord, what have you got for these people, these amazing people? Take them to your kingdom and use them in a mighty way. But being a part of the church means we have to contend for unity. Ephesians 4 verse 2, with all humility and gentleness. You know what humility is? It's the opposite of pride. Let go of your pride, all of us, and gentle. Be kind to people with patience. As much patience as somebody has shown you in your life, show it to other people, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When we do that, friend, just this, these, two, this, these two verses, if we just do this, let me tell you, the enemy is going to struggle to get into the church because we show a united front. The enemy is really good at dividing us. When Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling, what he's saying is he's saying, live in accordance to the way and to the understanding of what God has already done in your life. In other words, we come to church accepting two truths. The first truth is this. I was once lost, but now I'm saved. I was dead, but now I'm alive, right? And if that statement is true for me, if you're a child of God this morning, that statement is true for you too, which means we are united together under that one statement. Nobody came in here perfectly righteous, right? We all had to be saved. We all went through the cross. We all accepted the blood of Jesus. And so that unites us. We have common ground. The second thing that's true is that every one of us are saved by grace, through faith. It is not as a result of our works. In fact, we don't ever want to hear from anyone that I did this to get saved. No, Jesus Christ died on the cross. His blood was poured out for me. And because of what he did on the cross, I am saved. It's got nothing to do with us. But then we become Christians, right? And then we start to say, well, actually, you know, I read the Bible now. I do a little bit of praying every now and then. Hmm. And we start to judge everyone around us. They can't be believers. Mm, no, no, I've got something off about that person. And maybe it's real, maybe it's not. But we become really good now at separating sheeps and wolves. That's not walking according to the manner that God called us to walk. We have common ground and that should unite us. And it's from that common ground that we contend for unity. Now, I do want to say something about that word, contending for unity, because sometimes people have misunderstood me. I mean, it's a surprise, I get it. So I'm so clear to understand. But contending for unity doesn't mean we have to agree with each other ev on everything. Contending for unity doesn't mean we're trying to create a robot church here that everyone's going to just do what Marco or Mark or Charlie, the elders, say. Contending for unity means that we understand that we will disagree on certain things, that there'll be moments where we can't see eye to eye, but because of the common ground we come from, because we're both children of God, because we belong to the family of God, we will walk together looking to Jesus and we will work it out. That's what contending for unity is. We won't go and talk about it to everybody else out there. We will talk about it to the people we need to talk about it. That's contending for unity. And you know what? You might get to the end of that road. You'll love each other, but you might still not agree. That's the crazy part about it. But you'll be like, Jesus is more than this. And so we can agree to disagree. As long as it's not challenging any fundamental, foundational things. Verse 4, Paul continues, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is driving home, if you can't see it, let me tell you, he's driving home the fact that we are more united than anybody can actually believe. And the enemy's convinced us that we are not united. He wants the church to believe we're divided. He wants the church to believe that everyone's against you or this person and that person and this person doesn't like you, but we are united in Christ. There are seven things that he mentions. The first thing he says, he says, there is only one body. 
That's important. Paul was writing to a church that was fighting about Jews and Gentiles. Notice he doesn't say there's one body for the Jews and one body for the Gentiles. There's no one body for blacks and one body for white, one body for rich, one body for poor, one body for young, one body for old, one body for people who like loud worship, one body for another group who don't like loud worship. There is one body, friends. We're all part of one body, Christ's body together. And so there is no division in the kingdom. Everybody is equal at the foot of the cross. There is no better or worse, right or wrong. There are Jesus' people and that's it. He says there's only one spirit. And this is not vapor. It's not ectoplasm from Ghostbusters. This is a person. He is God in the Godhead, like Jesus and God the Father. This is the Holy Spirit. And so this notion that we have in our mind where we say, is that church spirit-filled? Like, just drives me nuts. Because if we're part of the church, then everyone has access to the Holy Spirit. Every church is spirit-filled. Now, I know, I understand where some of this question goes, and we can get really weird about it. But we should all be spirit-filled. Our hope, one hope. The hope is not that Hope Rock will make better coffee or that the music will sound better. The hope is not that people will be nicer to me or the chairs will be further apart or closer together. My hope is not that it will be brighter or dimmer. My hope is not that the wall will be painted pink. My hope is in my salvation. All of us have one weighty eternal hope to look forward to. It is called heaven. And it's only because of our salvation that we get to go to heaven. You know that. And so our hope unites us because we know that this world is as close to hell as we're ever going to get. But we're only going upwards, man. We get into a better place. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Get excited about that. He says there's only one Lord. Not one Pope and then another bishop or the pastor. No, there's only one Lord of the church. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head of this church. He is the chief shepherd. He gets all the glory. Not man, not systems, not models. Jesus Christ is the Lord. And we follow him and him alone. He says there's one faith. All of us are saved by one faith. You know what that faith is? It's the only faith that saves. It's the gospel. We can't be saved by millions of ways. There's only one way to be saved. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. That's it. That unites us, friends. He says people are underwater for 10 minutes, and if they survive, they're born again. Some people believe you can't just sprinkle. Or it doesn't matter. Take all of that stuff. This is not water baptism. He's saying it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that when you receive the promised Holy Spirit, you will be sealed. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. He unites us to God's heart. The moment you are saved, He came and dwelt in me. Christ in me is the hope of glory. That's what unites us. And you know, if Christ in me is the hope of glory, and I start to look at Mark and remember that Christ in Him is the hope of glory, maybe I'll treat Him differently. Although I do treat Him well. He treats me terribly. <laughs> Mark, this is all about you, but <laughs> just to... And then he says there's one God, not your version of God, my version of God, another God. No, there's one God, and he's the Lord who is through all, in all, and is the Lord of the church. These seven collective facts unite the church. Now, let me be clear. It doesn't mean that every church is going to look the same. It doesn't mean because of these seven collective facts that we've all got to look the same in the kingdom. We've all got to wear the same clothes. I mean, when you've seen people that do that, they look very weird. It looks like a cult. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to sing the same type of music at the same rhythm. It doesn't mean that some churches can't meet under trees and some churches have to be in buildings. That's not what it's saying. It's saying these seven facts unite the church. 
We, interestingly enough, follow a model for this church, a biblical model. We believe we see it in Scripture, and we've said we want to try to build church the way they build church in the Bible. You know, there's lots of books out there on how to build a church. Believe me, you can find a million of them. But we said, no, we want to build the church based on what we see in Scripture. And so what do we do? We go to the Bible and say, Lord, how do you build your church? And that's how we've chosen to build our church. Now, that doesn't mean that if somebody else out there who's building a church another way is not of God, as long as they agree on these seven fundamental facts, we're part of the kingdom together. We're not better than them or right or wrong. This is our conviction and we're leading from it. Fourth reminder, third reminder. Being a part of the church means that we have to celebrate variety. Ephesians 4 verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Notice he says there, to each one of us. A lot of people continue reading this verse and think it's only for special people in the church that get these very special gifts. No, each one of us, every one of us, say me, me, was given a gift. That's real good English. Say me was given a gift. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! That's how we talk in South Africa. Don't judge me. All of us have been given a gift. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 12. We did a series on that in the summer called Gifted. All of us have a supernatural superpower. And it comes from the measure of Christ's gift. My gift comes from Christ. Your gift comes from Christ. Yet what we're really good at doing is saying, we don't really need your gift. We like that gift the most. And we elevate certain gifts. People that can sing well, they must be important. People that can talk or teach, oh, they must be really important. Every gift is equally important in the kingdom. Every gift is by God. It's from Jesus. And that tells me a couple of things. It tells me that no two believers will look the same. And thank goodness for that, because if we were all the same, it would be a disaster. It tells me that variety is not a dividing issue. It tells me that if I have an opinion about something and I like to do things this way, it doesn't mean I'm a bad person and you know better than me. It means that my gifting leads me to operate like this. And so I have to say, well, how do I operate with my gifting and your gifting together? And when we put our gifts together, we start to see the body grow. In fact, that's part of this whole passage is when the gifts come together, when we all come together and say, how do we build each other up? How do we use what I've got and what you've got together? Then the kingdom grows. Instead of highlighting certain things and putting them up there on pedestals and say, oh, we need that. We need that. We don't need that. Don't worry, I'm not out of time. It's just a pre-pre-time morning. Ephesians 4 verse 7, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fulfill all things. This is a very weird passage of scripture, I've got to be honest with you. Because you read it, you're like ascending, descending, what's going on here? Let me just explain it really quick. Paul is actually using Psalm 68 verse 18 as the basis of this. And he's not quoting it he's expositing it in psalm 68 we encounter a psalm called the procession psalm it's about the creator god of the universe moving from mount sinai to the promised land and along the way he defeats his enemies both supernatural and physical it's a beautiful psalm god is taking his throne in that journey he builds a new temple a new jerusalem it's a picture of god establishing his church but there's something important we have to know In Psalm 68, God gets given the gifts. Jesus conquers these three planes of existence. He goes up to heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. He goes down to the grave. He's experienced death. And he's walked with us. He is the king of the universe. There is no plane of existence that is not under his authority. And because of that, he gives us his gifts so that we can grow up. And that's our last reminder. Being a part of the church means that every one of us in this room are full-time ministers. Full-time ministers. I hate that word because people say, oh, how long have you been full-time? I'm like, man, from the moment Jesus saved me. I don't say that because that's just stupid. I mean, I'm just being self-righteous. But 
honestly, like we, we, we have this perspective that there's certain people in the church that do all the work, right? Because they're paid by the church. But every one of us are full-time ministers and you've always been a full-time minister. We don't minister here on a Sunday morning, go home and forget about Jesus. In fact, 99% of our ministry as a church will happen outside of these walls and it should happen outside these walls. And you know it's going to happen through? Not me, not Mark. Certainly not Mark, he's very mean. <laughs> not Charlie. It's going to happen not through our wives only. It's going to happen through all of us, the collective body. That's why we say to know Christ and to make him known is all of our mandate. And then he speaks about these specific gifts. He says that he gave them apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, shepherds. Sorry, I read it around. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of these gifts have been given to the church. To equip us. That word is a word that Donnie Kittle taught me, karatizo, and it means to mend, to fix, to bring back together. The best way I can, uh, can explain it is if you take two pieces of wood and you join them together. What these gifts do is equip us. They join us back to the Father's heart. And they say, I'm going to give you all the things that you need to grow up in spiritual maturity. And there are five specific gifts mentioned. The apostles plant churches. They love churches. They father churches. They breathe life into them. The prophets here mentioned here are not prophetic voices that you switch on on TBN to go listen to about what's going to happen tomorrow in the stock market. The prophetic here that it's speaking about are the prophets that come in and teach us to hear from God ourselves. Do you know you can hear from God? You don't need a prophet to tell you what God's saying. Go to God and say, Lord, what are you saying to me? Yes, some people carry a big gift. But man, you are prophetic too if you're a child of God. The evangelists are those that can bring people to the heart of God and help them see that Jesus is their only hope. But their job people who love people really well. Some pastors are not really good at loving people like me, for example. That's what I've been told. But they're really good at teaching. Some people are great at loving people but can't teach. But these gifts all exist in the body so that all of us, the saints, can grow up into maturity. They are not for them to do the work. And for far too long, we've been treating Sunday mornings in church as a spectator sport. We come here and we, we, we sit down and we get fed and dare I say, we might even get entertained. And then we check the religious box and we say, there we go, I've done my church duty for the week. Those paid people, full-time guys will go and do the work of the ministry. No, nonsense. I've said this and I'm going to say it again. This church on a Sunday morning, even though it does happen and may happen, is not the place where people will get saved. Sometimes people do get saved here. But our purpose is to equip the body. To go and do the work of the ministry, friends. All of us together. It's a collective job. Another thing I want to say is that if all of these five gifts are necessary to bring the church into maturity, what happens if you don't have them in the church? I want you to notice that we don't have evangelists or like highly anointed evangelists or prophets in our church. We don't even have an apostle yet. Okay, we have an evangelist. I'm just using, just calm down. Okay. Oh my gosh. So what do we do? Okay, so what is the church? Say I planted a church tomorrow and all you had was me. I'm sorry, guys. But what do we do? Like, I mean, how do we grow? If those people are required, if those gifts are required for us to grow into maturity, what do we do? We partner with other people. We find those gifts. We partner with a team called NCMI. It's, a, it's not an organization. It's not a denomination. It's a group of gifts. Apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic, pastoral, and teaching gifts. And we invite them to our church and say, hey, please come teach us how to become better teachers. And so we have partnership in the kingdom. And it's not just NCMI. We partner with many other people too. But we invite those gifts in. So come help us grow. But I do want to say this. And this is important. They are functions. They are things we do. In this local church, we have a very simple view on how we do church governance. And it comes from Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. 
And it's, you introduced to the entirety of the church. It says here, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Those are the apostolic voices right there. Paul and Timothy represent, for lack of a better word, the partnering team. Paul actually planted this church. And they are going back to this church and encouraging this church. That's what these people do. To all the, who is the saints? All, who? All of us. So who are the most important people? You always introduce yourself to the most important people first. The saints are the most important people. So we believe in this church that you, including me, because I'm a saint too, are the most important people. And then he says, with the overseers and deacons. Overseers is elder slash pastor, whatever you call it. That's how we operate our church. We have an eldership team, three elders, and our wives who work in partnership with us, and deacons. But you won't be introduced to a deacon. They'll go, I'm Deacon Steve. And people have said to me, it's so confusing in your church because we don't know who anyone is. I'm Marco. In case you didn't know, that's my name. That's who I am. What I do is not who I am. It's not my identity. Who's an electrician here? Yeah, I need work from you, Michael. <laughs> Michael, when he goes out, he doesn't say, hey, I'm electrician Michael, I've arrived. You know, or, you know, like, uh, I'm homeschool mom cat, I'm here today. No, that's what we do. It's not who we are. Who we are is children of God. We are, saints of the, we are saints in the kingdom. That's who we are. And what we do may be different. I might be Marco who does pastor in a local church. And that's why, please call me Marco. If you call me pastor, I'm not going to shoot you. And I understand that there's a reality to some people being brought up in specific ways. That's fine. But we don't use those titles here. And so just be mindful that if you get confused, you don't know who's in charge, go look at the website. It'll tell you. But please just call me Marco. Amen. Jesus, who's in charge? Hallelujah. Amen. And the reason I'm laboring this is that titles do a great job of dividing the church. You know, for many years, in fact, this is part of why the Reformation happened, is the church had created this notion that there was somehow some sacred jobs and some secular jobs. The sacred jobs was allocated to all these people with these fancy titles, bishop so-and-so and pope whatever and apostle this whatever. And these people were the holy ones of God. You know, they were the holy rollers. You couldn't get behind them in the line. You couldn't stand near them. You couldn't even go to their house. And before you prayed, you better make sure they prayed first because God's not going to listen to you if they're praying at the same time. The Reformation taught us that there is no such thing as the sacred and the secular. There is no such thing as more anointed or less anointed in God's eyes. Now, we might carry greater capacity, but here's the reality. Every one of us can go to God ourselves, speak to God, and ask Him to speak to us. There is no preference in the kingdom. And so we need to break down. And I'm not against any church that does use this. Please, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying for our church... Let me close. The band can come up. Ephesians 4 verse 14 so that we may no longer, if you want to know why Paul is telling us about this church and why is it important for us to know about the church and understand who the church is and understand the functions of a church, he says this, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head who is Christ? Why do we need to know about the church? Well, if Isaiah was right, and he is, and we run the greatest risk of falling away to false teaching and even accepting false teaching, then the only way we shore ourselves up is understand the model of the church that God set up and follow it and hold to unity. That word love that Paul uses there is from the Greek word agape. 
It's not a selfish love, it's a selfless love. It's a love that says, I will lay down my life for my friends. I will put your needs before my needs. If we as a church could operate amongst each other with that kind of love, friends, the enemy stands no chance. And then if we take that love outside of these four walls, or there's actually more walls, but outside of this building, and we take that same love to the world, we will see people fill this room. Not for a show. Not for a parlor trick or a magic show or an experience. They will come here to encounter Jesus for themselves. And that's all we ever want to do. Everything we do in the church, everything we do in our lives, everything we do from this moment to the next, to be an advancing church means that everything is about how do we look, behave, speak, and act more like Jesus. I know you might think, well, that's impossible. But here is the last encouragement I'll leave with you. Isaiah 30, the same passage of scripture where he brings this basically scary prophetic word. He says this to the nation of Israel. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. How do we become more like Jesus? How do we we become the church that Jesus wants? He says, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In returning to who? To Christ. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. We don't need any of the things that the world offers us to achieve all that God's got for us. All we need and all we've ever needed is more of Jesus in our lives. Amen. Can I ask you to stand? We're going to break bread together. And how it's going to work is I'm going to pray for us. But I would encourage you once you've gotten your bread you're going to dip it in the cup and you're going to walk away but I would encourage you gather around people and if you say but I don't know how to pray you just say thank you Jesus that's the prayer right there thank you Jesus thank you Lord for loving me help me be more like you there's the prayer you can pray these two tables are gluten bread like pure gluten pure gluten <laughs> there is a table at the ba- at the back there which is gluten free and so if you're gluten free just go to the back table if you need the gluten you can come here But why do we break bread? Quickly. We break bread because every time we drink of the blood of Jesus Christ or we eat of His body, we remind ourselves of what happened thousands of years ago at the cross of Calvary. We remind ourselves that we have been purchased with blood, that it's the blood of Jesus, that that blood is is sufficient to sanctify me, and that no works of religion or goodness will ever save me. And so when we break bread and as you pray, thank Jesus for what he's done and say, Lord, make me become more like you every single day. The word says that before we break bread, we should consider what you've called me to be. And so let me pray and then we can break bread. We're going to sing one last song. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to die for us. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood that was poured out on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for the blood that we're about to drink that represents the blood of the new covenant. Thank you for your body that was broken for our sins, Lord, and for our healing and for our salvation, Lord. And we just say, Lord, we are so grateful as a church. We can't do this without you. We don't want to do it without you. And where we failed you, Lord, where we've made this about us and not you, forgive us today. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.